Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones. Uh, no Jens today on the program, so just going to fly solo with this one. Um, today on the program, I have Ryan Kinder, who's an artist, and he has uh, an album that's coming out on July 30th uh, called Room to Dream. Uh, so we're going to get to talk to Ryan in just a little bit about the making of that album, his history as a musician, uh, you know, lots of other uh, fun stuff, and making music in the, the pandemic. Um, that sort of thing. Before we get into that, uh, I want to talk a, a little bit about my weekend, which was uh, pretty interesting. I went camping with my kids, and um, and then uh, we had an interesting trip. We went up the coast to Jenner, California, which uh, to, uh, the trip was planned a year ago, and uh, and we had stayed at this campsite uh, that uh, that was really nice. We had a great time. So we booked it again for the next year and then included our uh, friends, uh, my best friend Joe and his family uh, for uh, for one of the nights. We stayed for three nights and uh, and the, the first night, uh, first day we got up there uh, and went down, saw the ocean. It was really, I mean, a short walk away, uh, which was really cool. Just relaxed, set up the tents, had, you know, you know, hung out around the campfire, that sort of thing. Made s'mores, of course. Uh, the kids love the s'mores. I do too. I love the s'mores too. Let's be honest. Uh, and then, uh, and and hung out. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, uh, in the second day, we decided to go about forty minutes away to Russian River to uh, not beat the heat, but actually get back in the heat a little bit and uh, be able to swim in the river. So we're not just sitting around. Uh, by the ocean for uh, three days. We mixed it up a little bit for the kids. And uh, and so we went to the uh, the beach, found a good spot. It was uh, it was pretty hot, like uh, like I said, and we took my dog Basil as well. And uh, and we had to look out for him. We got him in the water a little bit, uh, but, uh, but mostly put him under a shade uh, so that he would keep as cool as possible. Um, and uh, I think he was, was happy to be out, but it, we had to be mindful about how hot he was and uh, not to overdo it. But the kids loved getting in the water and swimming. And my daughter used an inflatable uh, duck that we have, like a duck inner tube, and was chasing around ducks that were paddling around the, the river. Uh, so we had a good time with that. And, uh, and then uh, went back to uh, the, the camp ground. Oh, but before we did, we went to uh, a pizza slash market called Fern's Market. And my daughter, Fern, really loved that there was a market with her name. And we talked to the cashier uh, who told us the history of the market. It's a cool little mom and pop thing. It's been in the family for a long time. Um, Fern, is, Fern is not a part of it anymore, but, um, but it's still holding her namesake. Uh, so so that was pretty cool. Go back uh, and then uh, and then hang out. And uh, and the next day, oh, uh, the one interesting thing that happened on the way to the river. I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but uh, uh, the the night before, um, the first night we got there, there was a payphone because there uh, was no cell service for at least fifteen to twenty miles. And uh, and so. We joked around and uh, said, "Okay, what if what if we call Grandma? You know, collect." Uh, the kids didn't know what collect was, uh, but it still exists. So we uh, we decided to use the payphone and call Grandma, my mom, and do the 
uh, Bob, at a baby, it's a boy sort of thing from, from back in the day. No reference for the kids, of course, to that, but uh, had them rush and say their names and hi. And in that rushing, uh, they, the message was cut off at some point. Uh, my mom declined the, the, the call. Uh, I didn't know that she declined it. I just hung up after about 40 seconds of not going through. And so the next day when we went to the river, we got service and, um, and my mom um, had texted and, uh, and had texted my kid's mom and my best friend, Joe, in, because she knew he was going there. She texted my kid's mom, or she called my kid's mom and uh and asked if she got a similar collect call she hadn't so she was working up the troops sort of thing uh worried that there was an issue because all, to her all she heard was kids screaming and he said it was coming from january california so in her mind she didn't know what what had happened well you know there's a lot of things wrong with this story right first of all kids didn't know what a collect call was second of all kids don't know grandma's phone number third of all grandma isn't going to be the first person that they call if there is an emergency uh, but you know grandma's going to worry right so uh, so she got worked up she got the kid my kid's mom worked up and uh, and my buddy Joe ultimately called the campsite and had them check on us they checked and confirmed that we were all there and accounted for and uh, and told him that we were good so he passed the message along um, no one ever talked to us about this beforehand which left this issue in limbo for about 24 hours until I got to hear the wrath of my mom uh, hearing, uh, telling me about how, uh, you know, I should have called back. I should have used quarters and called back, which maybe I should have, uh, but, and, uh, that she was worried sick and, uh, and just continued to chastise me. I had to hang up on her a couple of times. It was not a pleasant situation, but, uh, worked through it. I didn't let it ruin the trip and I worked it out with my mom a couple of days later. Right. Um, and so then the third day, uh, my buddy Joe, his wife, and uh, and kid come up, uh, and and it was the the last full day was really a lot of fun because my kids actually made they made friends on the beach that they hung out with on the beach and at both of our campsites, and uh, and my son had the sword battle with uh, another kid. You know they were they were having a lot of fun, and then uh, my and then Joe and his family came up and we had some more fun and we hung out and. Uh, joked about how he had a tent built for two uh, and he, there's no room for even his five-year-old son in their tent so we brought his son into uh, our tent which was uh, fun. His son woke up in the night and uh, was sitting on my back and I was oblivious to it. I was just out and uh, and he was sitting on my back and so I kind of nudged him in the direction of his sleeping bag and he said no no that's not the right way it's this other way and I had to turn on my headlamp and and show him where his sleeping bag was, but not a big deal, right? Uh, all part of the camping experience. And we hung out by the campfire and just talked and told stories and uh, shot the shit. It was, it was really, uh, really a lot of fun uh, overall. So uh, interesting times. And uh, I have another trip next week with my daughter. I'm gonna take her to Lake Tahoe um, and, uh, and get to spend some time with just her that, uh, will help us bond a little bit, uh, and, um, and have an experience. So, uh, so that'll be good. Uh, going to Lake Tahoe to visit, um, a friend up there and, um, and also spend some time with my daughter. So looking forward to it. All right. That's what's been going on with me. Uh, and nothing too crazy besides that to bring up. So I think we should bring Ryan Kinder in. 
Uh, again, his new album is Room to Dream that comes out July 30th. Uh, he's going to play us a song at the end of uh, the interview, so you should definitely stick around for uh, for that. And there's also a nice little uh, touch from his little fur buddy guest that uh, that is included. So uh, this is the interview with Ryan Kinder. We got a friend. Oh, you got friends hanging out, huh? Who do you got? Oh, okay. What's what's <laughs> our friend's name? Misha Barkton. Oh, Misha Barkin. Oh, what a, what a cute name. Okay. Oh, Misha's a loving dog, huh? <laughs> she she wants to go on a WALK real bad. And I told her, I've got something important, so you're going to have to wait. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, she'll get there. It won't, you know, won't keep you too, too long, but uh, I appreciate it. She can wait. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time, Ryan. Uh, no, um, thank you. Thank you for me, man. Absolutely. So uh, how are you doing? How have you been? I mean, we're kind of in this spot right now where things are starting to come back to, I don't know, is the word normal make any sense? But, uh, but what what does this time period look like for you? The, the new normal? Oh, uh, is that, we're going to use that one? Okay. <laughs> that, that's, that's the phrase everybody's using and, and everybody's sick of by now, Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's we're all trying to figure it out. I mean, everybody's been through trials and tribulations through the past uh, 16 months or so. And we're just trying to figure it out, man. It, it was, it was weird at the start, especially for songwriters and artists. Cause we were still able to create music, but it, it, it was weird not being able to go out and play uh, for people that wanted it and needed it. So we, jumped over to Instagram and, and Zoom concerts and stuff like that. <clears throat> and people got tired of that pretty quick, I think. And now finally we've got live shows coming back slowly. So that's that's a breath of fresh air. It's it's nice to try and get back to the new normal. Uh-huh. Do you have a lot of uh, upcoming shows booked already? Are you, you getting busy booking for the summer? Uh, we're trying a uh, possible tour this fall, and then I'm working on something for next year for uh, hopefully a, a long run of club to, uh, club shows, stuff like that. Yeah. Were you on tour when uh, when COVID hit? Uh, I was not. I was about to release my album, and my business manager, we were having uh, lunch, and he said, hey, don't don't do that. It's about to get real bad. I was like, ah, oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how bad it's going to get. And he laid out what he thought was going to happen over the next year. And to a T, like he was a soothsayer. It was wild. Everything happened that he said. And I'm very glad I listened to him and, and didn't put out the album just because it, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. We weren't going to be able to tour it. And it just, it would have been a bad situation. Yeah. So for you, what is, yeah, I mean, touring and kind of the album kind of going hand in hand is obviously so important, but what has that been like for you uh, to, to be able to tour that? And, you know, what would that, what do you see that would have been like if you weren't, uh, if you had put it out? If I had put it out during the pandemic? Yeah. Uh, I don't think it would have been recepted very well because I know for a while people weren't really listening 
uh, on whatever streaming platform they use, uh, those numbers dipped significantly and then they picked back up when people started working from home and, and got back into whatever their regular routine was. But I would have been disappointed because I wouldn't have been able to tour all that music. And uh, that's what I love. Um, most of these songs on the album, we tested on the road and we're so happy to have them on the album because we knew these are the ones that were fun live and, and worked live. And it would have been tough just to see that sit there for 16 or so months and not be able to play them live. So I was, I was very happy to wait. Yeah. Did you spend a lot of time writing music during the, uh, the pandemic? Did you, did you kind of get to a creative spot during that time? Once we figured out Zoom, um, it, it got to a quasi-creative space just because, I mean, if you're on Zoom, you, you're not in the room, you're not feeling each other's vibes, you're not um, figuring out how, this, I mean, you can't hear what somebody's like, per se, if I'm, I'm sitting here... It's hard to feel a vibe, you know, and you're not getting the same aura that you would if you were sitting right in front of somebody and you kind of get enveloped in what you both or all three of you or however many people are in the session are thinking that song's going. You, you just lose the, the beauty of why co-writing with other people um, is so spectacular because you you spur something in somebody else with something you do and it turns in it's left turns right turns and then that's what eventually um, blossoms into whatever song you're writing yeah did you, with the Zoom writing and everything, did you eventually get to a space where you're like, okay, we can make this work somehow? Or did it just never click the same way for you? We had to. I figured out if I laid down a, a guitar lick or made a track or some sort of vibe and sent it to people before the write, it was a lot easier, but you couldn't um, deviate from whatever plan it was without five, 10, 20 minutes of changing and then send it to them, see if they like it back and forth, back and forth. And it took a lot of time. So it was, it was weird, man, but yeah, you, you had to make it work. Yeah. So let's go back to your, your childhood. What music did you listen to growing up? What was on in your house when you were a kid? Yeah. My mom and dad had a bunch of records and they would play like the Troubadour era of uh, California country rock so i was listening to linda ronstadt james taylor the eagles jackson brown stuff like that and uh, she my mom started playing some al green and sam cook that era stuff and that just blew me away and then it was a vacation at some point she she played me a john mayer record and that's what really honed me in. That was that was my aha moment. Room for squares. Yeah, room for squares. Yeah. I remember hearing. Uh, I think it was. 
enjoy that my stupid mouth i was like oh all right where are we going with this and then i just tore apart that entire record and learned it and learned the whole thing oh yeah i I attest john mayer to being my inadvertent guitar teacher yeah and you taught yourself to play the guitar i mean really right like tell me about that process uh it was a lot of just sitting and playing records and trying to figure out what these guys were were doing and i feel like my failure to figure out what my heroes were doing led me to how i play myself whatever sound that is me was me not being able to get to where they were it was a melding of all those heroes and and my failure to get it perfect on there and so at what point did you pick up the guitar? How old were you? And, and who gave you your first guitar? Uh, it was the eighth grade. How, I can't remember how old you are in eighth grade. But there was a guitar 13. class. 13? Yeah. I was 13. And my best friend was taking a guitar class. And I decided to take it with him just because we were best friends. And I just fell in love. And I told my mom, hey, will you buy me a guitar? I love this. She said, if you can prove to me that you can play, I'll buy you one. So I borrowed a friend's and I just played incessantly. And I came back to her and I, I think the first one I played was like the, what was that? the James Bond theme. And she goes, uh-huh. All right, keep going. Let me see what you got. And I just would shed it and I'm pretty sure the first one I played her was uh, Blackbird singing in the dead. Yeah, like I played Blackbird, and she goes, "Okay, I th- I think you actually love this." So she bought me a guitar. Oh, she was sold. That's great. So your your parents have always been supportive, then. Yes, my mom and dad would come to shows when I started playing at bars because I wasn't allowed to be there without a chaperone. And my mom worked <clears throat> uh, as a nurse. So she would sleep in a booth and my dad would stand outside and, uh, with the bouncers and, and help them take uh, the cover money. And that was every weekend. So it wouldn't have happened without my parents. Yeah. It's, it's funny, I'm actually reading a book. I'm reading Seth Rogen's book right now. And his story is really emulating yours because he did the same thing except with stand-up comedy. You know, like he was a stand-up as a kid before you could technically go into bars and, and everything. And they had to have loopholes to get it to get him in. Their words, the rules weren't really written that, that clearly for those sort of things. And then you had to leave right after or something, you know. But, uh, you know, you got that passion and drive. You, you go for it and you're not waiting, right? <laughs> Yeah, it was it was all my parents being able to um, go through the trials and tribulations of staying up too late when they've got to get up for work and help their kid try and chase a dream. And they're they're still my biggest fans today outside of my wife. Yeah, of course. You know, I'm glad she supports. Yeah, so you started playing shows in high school, keeping pretty local to uh, to your area. Like, um, what did what did that look like for you, and, and kind of how did you grow through that experience? Uh, it was 
local enough to where I could get back on whatever morning I had to go back to school. I would play sometimes uh, two hours away on a Wednesday night and I have to get back to school on Thursday morning. And that's what I wanted to do. And my parents said, well, if this is what you're going to do, then that's what we're going to do. So I would play until two or 3 AM. We would drive back and sleep for a couple of hours and then go back to school and try and make it through class. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was every week, every weekend. I was just trying to, do everything I could to put in my 10,000 hours. Right. And so, and so your first album was uh, around 2007 self-titled, right? Uh, yeah. And, album. Uh, uh, okay. We, we, we'll use air quotes. So, so tell me about this, this album, what was it like, and, and how do you go about it, you know, with it being your first? So I, I grew up going to a Baptist church and I met the head sound engineer at this church was a huge church. So there was a lot of sound needs and we got to be friends and I started working for him. So I was kind of a grip for church for a while, doing all the choir tours. And uh, eventually I started leading worship for a little while. And obviously me and this guy, Courtney McGookin, stayed friends. And, the church, uh, I started playing bars and the church said, well, you've got to choose if you're going to lead worship or play bars. And I said, well, this is what I want to do the rest of my life, be a musician. So, bye. Yeah, <laughs> it was that easy, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I knew what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to play Christian music. I, I grew up on soul and uh, rock and I all time all types of genres and i knew what i wanted to do and courtney said hey well let's let's go and try and make a an album together and one of his friends had a studio in homewood alabama and we went and i played some of the songs i wrote when i was a kid they they weren't fantastic but it was all i had and we spent a while trying to figure it out and it was an acoustic album he was a fantastic engineer and mixed it all and put it out. I started playing more live shows. I was playing the originals out at some of these cover shows and people started buying some of these CDs and it grew from there and grew from there. And Courtney actually introduced me to um, a friend of his and a friend of a friend who went to high school with Keith Stegall. And he sent my stuff to Keith and, Keith asked me to come up to Nashville and play me some songs. Uh, we got to be friends. Time went on. I kept playing the college Southeastern circuit, doing cover gigs and original gigs and stuff like that. And then I finally moved up to Nashville. And Keith kind of took me under his wing and that, that's how my Nashville uh, path started. So when you moved to Nashville, did it seem pretty natural? Did it seem like a, a good fit? I mean, there's quite a music scene out there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was easy just because I'd been driving up here every Sunday. So when I was in college at Alabama, I was playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
I would drive up to Nashville on Sunday, write with Keith or write with somebody else that Keith knew on Monday, drive back to Tuscaloosa and go to class Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning, and then start that. And I did that for two years, I think. And then the tornado hit in 2011, and that was kind of like a come to Jesus moment. I know what I want to do with my life. So once I could get out of Tuscaloosa after that tornado, I immediately moved up here. And that changed the tornado changed your perspective on so much, right? I mean, like it, it kind of is that what spawned uh, Kinder's kids? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the so me and my friend Ben Olson were in our house. We we knew the tornado was coming. Um, our, my friend, James Spann, I've known him since I was a little kid. He was the meteorologist for that area. He was on TV saying, if you're in Tuscaloosa, get to a safe place immediately. It's going to get bad. And I remember looking out the window and seeing dumb college kids sitting in lawn chairs, drinking, having a tornado party. I think I've air quoted 25 times in this interview now. They're having, they're having a tornado party, and I thought, they're idiots. And then all of a sudden, I looked out this window, and they just scattered. I was like, well, here we go. I looked at the TV. He said, it is coming down this street. If you are around anywhere on the street, get to cover. So me and Ben went to the um, most central area of the house and hunkered down. And when people say it sounds like a freight train coming through, it sounds like 20 freight trains coming through. The house compresses everything's shaking and you think you're going to die and it was so very close to our house thankfully it it didn't demolish the house i remember coming out the front door and looking straight and nothing was demolished and then i turned around and everything was gone so i remember just sprinting down the street to try and help people and i get to a certain point where it was just flattened where it used to be condominiums, houses, all this stuff, it was just flat. And I saw a child on the slab of what used to be their house, just clutching a teddy bear. And that stayed with me for forever. It's, I can still see it vividly in my mind. And it didn't, um, it didn't hit me until I got to Nashville and I started touring super heavily and I was able to have a rider the the water or food or whatever we would need backstage and it gave me the thought hey why don't i ask for a toy or a teddy bear at all these shows since i mean they're giving us stuff that we don't use all the time let's let's put this to good use and i told every venue the story of why i wanted to do this and i told this to my wife and she said this is fantastic let's 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 do this. So we started calling it Kinder's Kids, which is uh, a redundancy in itself because Kinder in German means yeah. child, so it's child's kids. But it fit perfectly. We would do a toy drive every year for kids affected by a natural disaster and take all those toys that we get to whatever area that was affected that year and, and do a toy drive. And it, it's been fantastic. So the response has been really great for that then. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad because when something like that happens, a lot of the kids get 
not forgotten, but around Christmas time, when there's that much desolation, the first thing you're thinking of is shelter, food and clothing and Christmas toys is an afterthought. So it was wonderful to be able to take care of families that weren't going to be able to afford a Christmas that year. Yeah. And, um, and so, I mean, going through that experience, how did you see kind of your neighbors come together and rebuild? What did that, what did that look like? It's wild when something like that happens, everybody drops everything. Yeah. And they just want to help. They just want to meet whatever needs that are right in front of them and rebuild as fast as possible. And I mean, the day I moved to Nashville was the day of the flood. And that was the exact same thing. Desolation and the entire town came together to try and get back on their feet. It's just when something like that happens, the community comes together like never before. I think it's just innate, it's human nature to help your fellow man during such a uh, harrowing time. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, I don't have a, uh, a segue or a tangent, but, uh, but I wanted to ask you about your, your where you decided to cover uh, Justin Bieber's Sorry on uh, Deconstructed Studio Sessions EP. So tell, tell me where that came from and how you approached covering that song. So I was on a radio tour uh, and the, the Purpose album had just come out. Usually when something like that comes out, I, I will, I'll listen to everything just to see what the hype's about and see what they, they did to uh, push the meter and change themselves and try and do something cool and, and feverish genius. So I, I listened to that album almost on every plane flight, plane flight, every flight, obviously. <laughs> every flight and absolutely loved it. The production was unbelievable. Songwriting was great. Uh, melodies, I mean, he's a melody genius and sorry, stuck with me. And I can't do a cover unless I can make it my own and, and try and justify doing that cover i don't want to do it exactly like they did it so i had to sit here and figure out how can i make this super pop song something that i enjoy and i remember just jamming on this groovy blues thing and i brought it to a rehearsal one time and started playing it and everybody was like well what is that i was like oh it's it's sorry justin bieber i was just messing around with it and like oh we should we should do a cover it's like, that's what I was thinking. So that was the birth in a very large nutshell. Yeah. Are there other songs you've covered that uh, you kind of do take a unique approach with as well? Uh, Fortunate Son by mm. CCR, John Fogarty. Um, I did that one just because I, I love Fogarty. It's one of the best writers alive. Yeah. And the lyrics that song goes by so fast and a lot of people miss how heavy and powerful those lyrics were at the time I, I wanted to 
try and focus on that. And the only way to do that was to slow it down and, and, and strip it back, take a lot of the awesome guitar riffs out, which I hated because I, I love guitar riffs, but it, it focused it on the lyrics and, and that's what mattered. And that cover actually landed me the uh, John Fogarty's Easy Top Tour because- Is that how you got it? Okay, I was gonna ask if you played that for him, so. <laughs> Yeah. I never played it on tour with him, but his wife heard it, and th that was the opportunity to get on that tour. Yeah, and he gave you some good advice that you didn't really understand at the time, but tell me, tell me about the advice and where it kind of settled with you. Yeah, I was. it was the second sound check. We already played a show the night before, and he could tell I was a little uh, down or... or weird about the entire arena or shed or amphitheater we were playing wasn't completely full which is ridiculous because I'm the opening act and it's not going to be full so he he walked up to me sorry okay there's a motorcycle blaring right out the way he uh walked up to me in the middle of sound check, I couldn't see him. He was coming from my back and he, he put his arm around me and I turned around and I said, oh, John, hi. And he said, hey, son, I'm, I'm, I'm super glad you're on this tour. And I just wanted to say, don't ever play to the empty seats. And uh, like you said, I, I, I didn't get it at the time because I was a little starstruck. That was the first time I met him. And it took me a second to realize he was saying, don't, don't play to the people that aren't there, play to the people that care enough to come early and listen to somebody that they've never heard. And that goes with almost any aspect of life. You're not playing to the empty seats, you're, you're selling something, you're selling it to the people that wanna hear about it. I mean, you're doing what you do to the people that want to hear what we have to say, uh, any, job or pretty much anything that that can be turned into a philosophy to think about when you're trying to focus and find your crowd and there's the 45th air quote good we're right on track we're, we're gonna get to 60 at least so <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you do you feel that that advice really like helped your overall performance? Oh, absolutely. I didn't care about anything but the people that were there, the people listening. It was it was like that was the the entire arena shrunk to however many people were there, and that's all that matters. That's awesome. How was the tour as a whole? Unbelievable, unbelievable. Because I mean. Billy and Beard and John and his whole family. I mean, they were so kind. It's that was a summer I'll never forget. Yeah. What a, what a great live performance and getting to see it night after night, right? <laughs> oh, I watched it every single night. I mean, these guys are, it was wild how fine tuned both their shows were and how perfect they were it's like they've been doing it for 50 years yeah yeah they're not strangers so yeah 
okay, so let, let's talk about uh, Room to Dream. Tell me about the uh, the new album and kind of how how it came about. Like you said, you were uh, getting ready to release it, so you, you had to sit on it for a while, but um, but what was your approach with this new album? It was the opportunity for me to just do what I love. That, that was the idea behind the title, Room to Dream. I just want to have the ability to do what I want to do with an album, genreless or not. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of different styles and, and types of music on this album, and it weaves in and out. And that was the entire concept was just having the ability to <clears throat> do all of those things and meld them together with me and my voice and certain storylines. And I feel like it came together well. I guess we'll find out when it fully comes out, when people hear it. But I'm super proud of it just because these are some of the songs I've loved for a long time. Some of them are eight years old. Some of them are two years old. We've road tested a lot of them. And they resonated with crowds. And it was, it was fun to make just because there was no woodshedding, per se, to try and figure out how it's going to come together. We already knew because we've been playing them for a long time. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I got to do it with one of my best friends, Luke Sheets, who produced it with me. Oh, that's fun then, right? So, yeah. And how, how have you grown as a musician, as a, a songwriter over the, you know, all the years that you've been making music? I would like to think I've gotten a lot better, but self-deprecation is my uh, first go-to. I usually think I'm uh, not as good as I should be. I always have imposter syndrome, but with the people I've been around and the people I've been able to learn from, there's no way I haven't bettered myself as a guitar player, a musician as a whole, and a songwriter. Yeah, yeah. I want to take a turn in this chat a, a little bit and kind of, because you've invested yourself so much in your music, but that's not the only thing you invest in, uh, you know, with yourself. I mean, you're, you're preparing for uh, an Iron Man, right? Like, in, um, but have you done Iron Man's before? Yes, I've done okay. five now. Okay. And the next one is in uh, Kilauea Kona in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And the world championships and we're doing a kinder's kids initiative there just because covid has wrecked that island because tourism is the main means of financial stability for them so we're taking the natural disaster route as being a pandemic disaster and bringing christmas to those kids in october yeah um so Tell me about your your exercising and like and, and kind of the whole process. I mean, I'm I'm crazy. I'm on the Peloton every time I you know I can. I'll tell you. <laughs> like, I mean, the pandemic launched me into that. You know, you know. But also, I've done other crazy things. With, you know, not to that level. Like, I mean, but like, I I'll just tell you. I live in Napa, California, uh, and um, tough life, bud. 
I know, right? I, on, a vineyard, on a vineyard property, uh, not not mine, but anyway. Uh, but uh, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I guess I think it was 2016. Like I ran every street in Napa in under three months. Uh, you know, and uh, um, yeah, like awesome. Four, yeah. So I mean, it was just this big project. I, you know, I looked at like a big puzzle. You know, <laughs> plotted out a piece here and did five, ten miles this day, five, ten miles over. You know, sort of thing. And so, I, I have a little bit of that crazy exercise gene. But, but you know, I've never done anything to that degree. I've I've only done half marathons. I, I've never even worked up to a full marathon. It's pretty intimidating, because I'm pretty fast too. So. Uh, I just want to hear from you, kind of uh, your approach when you got started, uh, and and how you can kind of invest yourself so deeply in you know in each area, you know, swimming, biking, running. Well, I mean, if you're hitting ten miles every other day in Napa, you're you're hitting some heavy hills, so you could hit a full marathon, no problem. Yeah, I know. I, I'm, like I said, I'm just I'm intimidated because like I, a half marathon, I did you know, like in an hour and a half, an hour and 31 minutes, something along the lines and my feet were on fire. I just, I have a hard time slowing down <laughs> and pacing myself. So I'm sure I could. I, I don't well, run as much anymore. It's just biking. But anyway, I want to hear about yours. So <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it, you know, I mean, it started with a friend that he got cancer and we knew he was going to pass away and he was doing this bike ride called the tour de natchez trace and it was 444 miles the entirety of the natchez trace from the bottom of mississippi all the way back to nashville and when we knew he wasn't going to make it i said well i'm, I'm going to do the bike ride in your stead and i didn't know what i was getting into i was an avid cyclist um, i knew how to ride a bike but i didn't know what i was getting into and my butt hurt that's a so long bad. time. So bad. But I met his roommate on that ride, and he was riding a weird-looking bike. I mean, he was sitting like this, and he was going really fast. But we got to talking, and he said, oh, this is a TT bike. This is a time trial bike. They use it for triathlons, Ironman stuff. And Kyle, my friend, hey, he's, he was talking about wanting to do some of these Ironman stuff. And at that moment, I thought, well, I'm going to try and do every Ironman I can since he's never going to be able to. And it turned into this obsession and it was a beautiful obsession just because the juxtaposition of triathlons and the music industry, if, if you put hundred percent into training, nutrition, recovery, you're going to get to the finish line and, and get the time that you want. And the music industry, you can do everything right. And there's still so much out of your hands. So I needed that separation and it was kind of a little bit of just me time. And I enjoyed that and, and it turned into so much more. I, I got hooked up with the Ironman Foundation and, and started trying to help there. And we've partnered with Kendrick's Kids. It's been fantastic. Now I have the opportunity to race in the world championships. But uh, training is a daunting task. I, I did it, I did my training plans by myself for years. And then once I got to Kona, I said, I, I need to get a coach and i finally got a coach and i have every workout plan for every day and i'm usually up at 4 a.m getting ready for those because i don't want to take away my time from music during the day so i have to get it done before i normally would be awake 
because if it weren't for Kona, I would definitely not be awake at 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always been an early riser, so 5 a.m. is always my exercise hour, you know, and then later throughout the day and everything, but <laughs> it's always early like that to get it out and get it done and start it and everything, but yeah, I mean, so do, so do you do like all three, do you make time for all three or do you balance it like, you know, swimming, do you make, how often do you get, get out to do that, right? I think. Well, it, it differs every week just because there's, there's heavy weeks and then there's um, recovery weeks and heck, there's, there's 51 <laughs> recovery weeks where you're letting your body kind of take in all the training you've done. Um, it changes every day. Sometimes there's a 3,500 meter swim and then an hour run on a Monday and then an hour bike and a 20 minute off the bike run. And then Wednesday, it changes. It's different every week, except for Saturday and Sunday. Saturday is the long ride. And then a short off the bike run. And then Sunday is your long run. Always. Yeah. So it's weekends beat you down. Yeah. Is there ever a day you don't exercise or? Uh, there, there's rest days that he, he puts in for me. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know if it's every two weeks, every other week, sometimes he'll throw in some rest days. He'll see all my metrics and yeah. see you're, you're overtraining. You're, you're, you're not hitting your numbers. You're not um, doing what I need you to do. Your body's not responding. Maybe you're not taking in enough nutrition. You're not eating well, but your body needs to rest. So he'll say, all right, kill the workouts you've got for tomorrow and rest. So it, it just depends. Yeah. I don't have that setting in me. Um, I, li I live on my Apple watch. And so I've filled my loops every day for 2,100 something days straight. And I, I just, I can't stop. You know, it's this thing that, yeah. you know. I've got, I'm on the Garmin. I got a. Uh -huh. Yeah. Metrics yeah I, data. I know. I know. I just, I can't stop. I, I can't break it now. I, I, even if I'm sick, I just, I'm at least, you know, getting a minimum level of exercise. That, <laughs> you know? Got to. So, yeah. It's, that's the psychosis of people like us. Yeah. Yeah. Glad I'm in good company. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, well, cool. So Ryan, um, I understand you're going to be able to play a song. Yeah, man. Hopefully when I start singing, my dog's not going to start howling. Well, we can have some audience members. It's okay. <laughs> she is asleep right here. Hey, you gonna be quiet? Can you be quiet? Okay. We'll see what happens. If there are <clears throat> certain points in some songs where I'll hit a really high note and she'll just start howling. Cause she thinks I'm howling at her. Like <laughs> She's one of the dogs. Her, I could get her to do it right now, but I don't want to. I'll do it after the song. Okay, okay, we'll do this on first, and we'll get her to howl. Do what? I said we'll, we'll do this on first, and we'll get her to howl. <laughs> yeah. There's one song she howls every time. Every time. <clears throat> Is this all right? I'm on in yeah. frame. Yep, you're lined up, you're good.
keep saying we're just friends. But I light up you walk in. You make me laugh, I make you smile. So, but all the while we keep saying we're just friends. Maybe this is when you tell me I should say Maybe this is when I'm supposed to drive away Maybe this is when we say what we don't say Something in the way we lean good night Makes me make sure you made it home alright Something about the way you let goodbye Live a little longer every time Something how we always almost kiss Never seem to call it what it really is How long can we go on Saying it's nothing Maybe it's something Maybe it's something I know you know my heart I know what you're gonna say Even before you start You spill my cold when you get cold I tell you things nobody else knows Girl, they say the way friends are Maybe this is where we're supposed to walk Maybe this is when we find the verses. Something in the way we leave goodnight Makes me make sure you made it home alright Something about the way we let goodbye Live a little longer every time Something how we always almost kiss Never seem to call it what it really is How long can we go on saying it's nothing Maybe it's something Maybe it's something Maybe this is when you tell me I should stay Maybe this is when we find the words to say Yeah I like it. Good stuff. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So we're going to get her to hell. <laughs> you want to do it? Say hi.
buddy. Guess you don't want to do it at all. Come here. You want to say hello? Awesome. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking the time and uh, chatting. And um, I know you're excited to get the new album out here next month and uh, and then get back on the road and playing shows and, and doing all that. And uh, uh, so I, I want to wish you the best of luck with that and with it, uh, the Iron Man and, and everything you got uh, coming up because it's a lot of exciting stuff. Keeping you Thanks, busy man. for sure. I appreciate that. Do the marathon. You've got it in you. I believe in you. I got to get out running again, and that's going to get me off the peloton. So, <laughs> hey, yeah. you you just got to get a double. You got to do, do the it. peloton and run a little bit, and next day run a lot, do a little peloton. It's it's all about give that's and it. take. You're you're right. I'm gonna get out and do it. So it's it's gonna happen. You know, it's just one of those things that's there. I just got to get and do it. So, yeah, um, awesome. That was the interview with Ryan Kinder here on Concert Pipeline. And that takes us to the final segment on the program, the music news. All right. I have a handful of stories about what's going on in the music world to share uh, some interesting stuff. And, uh, and it's really I mean, I'm getting lots of positive vibes from all the shows that are being announced, uh, lots of concerts, lots of festivals, bands getting out there, uh, playing live shows, a lot, some of them doing it more responsibly. The, uh, the Foo Fighters are playing shows to only vaccinated and, uh, people, and people who can show a negative COVID test, um, you know, which is a creative approach to making sure that we're all being safe, right? Um, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And so... I'm going to start with a, a story about Metallica. Um, they uh, announced a special reissue of the Black Album and S Star Studded Covers album. So it's called the Metallica Blacklist, and it features covers by St. Vincent, uh, Biffy, Clyro, Phoebe Bridgers, Miley Cyrus, Idols, and many more. Uh, they announced a special pair of releases to celebrate the upcoming 30th anniversary of their album, uh, Metallica, AKA the Black Album. Um, their fifth studio album was released in August of 1991 and featured such, such songs as Enter Sandman, The Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters, some of their biggest hits, of course, which is uh, awesome. Um, and it's said to be remastered for the definitive new reissue, which will be uh, released on September 10th um, on the band's own Blackened recordings. Um, so another release, the Metallica Blacklist, will see over 50 artists, each contributing a unique interpretation of their favorite Black album song with profits from the tribute record being split between charities of the artist's choice and Metallica's All Within My Hands Foundation. Uh, so the record was previewed today, uh, the Davis is dropping. Um, with the release of Miley Cyrus's cover of Nothing Else Matters, which features Elton John, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, Chad Smith, Watt, Yo-Yo Ma, and Metallica's Robert Turrio, 
Um, and uh, I listened to this earlier today and it's just such a touching, you know, version, which is cool. We'll play just a, a snippet of it. <laughs> Excuse me. Let's skip ahead. <laughs> oh my God. So I'm not a huge Miley Cyrus fan generally, but you know, this is such a great version of that song. She brings such, you know, such a you know pop and dynamic to this song, with <coughs> with really prominent Elton John, uh, Robert Trio. You can hear him in there. You can feel Chad Smith on the drums. You can even hear Yo-Yo Ma uh, in there as well. Uh, it's it's a really cool version, so I meant, recommend checking that full song out when you have the chance. All right, uh, next story is uh, a good news story. Uh, over 670 independent U.S. music venues and promoters have now received government relief. Um, that's over 5,000 venues and promoters have applied for funding from the Shuttered Venue Operations Grant. Um, and following the coronavirus pandemic and enforced shutdown of live music, uh, so a lot of venues are being uh, supported now. 667, excuse me, 677 grants from the SVOG have now been awarded to independent venue operators, promoters in the US who have suffered, suffered a substantial drop in the income due to the pandemic. Um, and um, as of yesterday, a total of 1,445 applicants had received award notices for funding from the federal relief program. Um, and uh, only 13% of the, those that have applied have received any funding so far. Uh, let's see, the SBA did come in for criticism last month after it was revealed that they had yet to distribute any relief from the SVOG uh, to independent venues, uh, but they're uh, trying to get that all taken care of. And now they've been able to uh, start making a difference. So, uh, so that's pretty great. All right. Uh, let's talk about Frank Turner. Uh, he was handed Music Venue Trust's Outstanding Achievement Award on top of the O2. Um, and uh, he, this was during a windswept ceremony. Uh, the artist and independent music venue champion was handed the award uh, during the uh, team MVT up the O2 climb, which saw a select group uh, raising funds by climbing up the iconic venue as many times as possible within an hour. That's an interesting feat. Okay, uh, Frank was recognized for hosting 27 shows, which were instrumental in directly enabling grassroots music venues to survive the coronavirus crisis, having raised nearly 300,000 um, pounds. And Mark David, CEO of the MVT said, with all the venues Frank has helped and all the people he has inspired to get involved in the Save Our Venues campaign, there was never any doubt of, about who should receive the award this year. Frank absolutely embodies the motto of MVT during these last 16 months. People who say it cannot be uh, done should get out of the way of people doing it. Um, and uh, so really, really proud of Frank Turner there. He's been on the program a couple of times, really great guy. Um, love his live shows and love how outgoing he is for 
uh, for those in his community, which is uh, which is awesome. So congratulations, Frank. All right. Oh, my throat is a big old sore throat. So uh, I'm going to finish off with one more story. Of course, it's uh, about Mr. Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. Um, they are releasing a disco album under a, uh, a Bee Gees tribute alias. Yes, that is right. I said they're releasing a disco album. So um, here's a little preview of uh, the Foo Fighters in uh, full-on disco. Uh, and they've also changed their band name for this. Um, after a masterful return to the stage over the weekend at Madison Square Garden, their first post-COVID performance, the iconic rock band were quick to announce their next big musical endeavor, becoming the DGs. Uh, DGs, obviously inverse of BGs, but also clever because it's uh, about Mr. DG Dave Grohl, right? Um, so it's an album uh, titled Hail Satan. It's coming to a local record store and dance party near you, July seventeenth. Um, and um, yeah, it's not a long time to wait. According to Rolling Stone, it's a 10 track offering uh, and it's gonna bundle five Bee Gees classics. You should be dancing, Night Fever, Tragedy, More Than a Woman and Shadow Dancing along with five disco inspired editions of songs from Foo Fighters recent album, Medicine at Midnight. Uh, so we've been going down to the uh, studio, our studio every day and filming things and recording things. And this one day we had our list of things we were supposed to do and it said record a cover song for Joe, Dave Grohl recalled. Uh, and while we were having this conversation, someone said, hey, have you seen that Bee Gees documentary? And I was like the last person on earth, the only person that hadn't seen it. So I was like, well, why don't we just do a Bee Gees song? And someone was just like, okay, how do you want to do it? And I said, well, let's do it like the Bee Gees. Uh, so again, July 17th is when that is going to come out. Great news on the front of, uh, for Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters fans. Love it, love it. It's uh, really awesome. Um, all right, so that is the show for today. Again, I want to thank Ryan uh, Kinder for being on the program. Uh, and uh, next week on the program, I believe we are going to have uh, Dylan Rockoff, uh, an interview I did a couple weeks ago. Uh, and uh, looking forward to sharing that, but um, always new music coming down the pipeline. And for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. I'll catch you next time.